Welcome to Feels Like Healing with me, Al Lewis. A podcast where I talk to artists about how creativity has helped them process their grief. The reason I'm making this podcast is because when I was 21, I lost my dad to MS. That seismic moment in my life made me decide to become a singer-songwriter. I'd been making music before that point, but never considered it a life choice or as a career. However, after the death of my dad, creativity became a solace for me and a way I could express both my joy and my pain. It made me feel alive in the very moment when I was confronted with the ephemeral nature of life and the devastating reality of loss. So I wanted to talk to other people who've ended up in the creative world, but who've also experienced loss, to see whether they have similar stories of why they got into creativity or whether they were already creative people and just happened to suffer grief. I hope during these conversations that I will come to better understand grief and why it makes us feel how we feel and do what we do. This is Feels Like Healing. Hello, how are we all this evening? Thank you for coming. The first live episode that we've ever done. So I hope you find this evening an event inspirational and positive. First of all, can I ask you to give a warm round of applause to our guests. I've got Karis Aleri. <laughs> and Hannah Daniel. <laughs> and Gavin Porter. <laughs> so each one of my panel have been affected by grief and have used their grief in a creative way. Um, for those of you who perhaps haven't listened to the podcast before, it's a podcast where I talk to creative individuals in whatever field they're in about how they've used their grief in a positive way, uh, be it in writing music or in creating a, a film or a book um, in any way possible. So I'm going to start with Karis because she's the nearest person to me here. Karis is a Welsh-born actress and singer, writer, composer. I told you she had a lot of titles. Truly multifaceted. Um, she's worked extensively in television and theatre in Wales and twice been BAFTA Cymru nominated for Best Actress and Best Presenter. Her debut show, Lovecraft, Not the Sex Shop in Cardiff, which is just around the corner from here <laughs> for those listening to the podcast, is, is described as a one-woman science comedy musical about the neuroscience of love and loneliness. It won her many accolades and was performed at the Edinburgh Festival and last year was adapted into a radio show for BBC Radio 4. She's also an accomplished singer in many different styles and is a member of Charlotte Church's infamous late night pop dungeon. Her book, Dodnolatsvang uh, Hoyd, which translates as To Return to My Trees, was released last year and it's a memoir about Caris's loss of her dad and also her best friend Tristan and how she used creativity in those difficult times. Hello, Karis, Shumai. Yeah, that's a Lace lot, cal- that's a lot to take in. <laughs> <laughs> I feel accomplished now, I've, I've reeled all that off. Wow, it's really lovely to hear. <laughs> say it again. To, <laughs> say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> so, what was your first foray into creativity where you thought, um, I'm actually quite good at this and maybe, maybe there's a, career for me in this and what was it because I've just mentioned all those different things you do was there one at the beginning that you were more focused on I think like a lot of Welsh speaking kids in Wales you know we pretty much kicked onto the stage quite young and uh, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it and and then I was loving acting and singing in school plays 
Um, I think my singing struggled a lot when I was younger, but I was still just giving it a bash. And I just thought, this is great. I'm just going to do this. And then my parents were like, no, you're going to be a lawyer now. <laughs> and I was like, well, you should have thought of that before you kicked me onto the stage. So what, are, we, are we teenage <laughs> Caris now? How old are we? Yeah, teenage Caris. Uh, the deciding, you know, whether to, what uh, courses to do to go at, at university. And I was very much, you know, I'd done all my work experience with lawyers. And I thought, yeah, I could do this. But God, it's boring. Divorce, divorce. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to have a fun path. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I want to do theatre, media, music. Thank you very much. And they were a bit fuming with me for a bit, but then they were just like, it's your life. So I cracked on. And um, it took a while then, of course, professionally to get myself onto my feet. Um, and I remember telling my mother and my friend Tristan, um, I'm going to give it till 30 for something good to happen, and then I'll, I'll just think about something else then. But then loads of stuff came in, so I was very, very lucky. I'm going to move on to you now, Hannah. Welcome, Croeso. Yeah. Um, Hannah Daniel is an actress from Cardiff, best known for her roles on the TV series such as the dual language hits Hinterland and Keeping Faith. Most recently, she was in the Channel 4 drama The Light in the Hall. And in 2020, she co-wrote, directed and starred in, I told you these people are very multi-talented, <laughs> uh, in the BBC short film Burial, in which she plays three identical triplets bashing out their grief at their father's funeral. A story of love, pain and reconciliation. A grieving daughter's attempt to make sense of the madness of grief. So Hannah, I first saw the link between you and grief in a, in a piece that you'd written for Vogue, a, a beautiful piece that you'd written about your journey to sort of comprehend how grief had affected you. Um, but if we turn the clock back a bit, when, when was acting a, a, a viable uh, life choice for you? When did you first go? Were you like Caris on the stage in like the Eisteddfod? I went through the militant Eisteddfod <laughs> training as a Welsh-speaking child. No choice. <laughs> and yeah, I think in equal measures loved it and was terrified of it. Um, so yeah, I started quite young. Um, I went to a really brilliant out-of-school acting workshop while I was at school run by a guy in Cardiff called Pete Waldridge who still runs his workshop and it was just young people from all over Cardiff just he'd give us a camera and he'd set us out on our way through the streets of Cardiff to make films and cut them together and be in them and write them and that really it was my favorite thing every week the Thursday night workshop it's also something that I would love to be able to make a living out of um, and then quite similar to Caris again, got to, uh, you know, university choices time. And um, <laughs> my parents had a panic. Were you going to be a lawyer as well? Were you I wasn't going to be a lawyer, but they were just like, just get a degree, just get a degree. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll just get a degree. You're right, you're right, you're right. So I ended up, I did a degree in English literature. And then after my first week of uni, just cursing my parents. I studied in UCL, which is here, and my fr best friend Griff, who I'd done all my drama with all through school, was in RADA here. Not that I would have probably got in, but I would have in my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I'd meet him at lunch, and he'd be like, oh, Alan Rickman's just been in, had a chat with us. And I'd be like, I just had some fusty old man talk about Shakespeare, and, you know. But actually, I'm so glad I did it. And it took me a while. 
actually not until my late 20s to really kind of hone exactly what made my heart sing. I knew I liked acting. I knew I was interested in writing. I didn't have the confidence to show. I'd, I'd you know, scribble things down and, you know, we'd, we'd improvise and we'd write sketches together in drama societies at uni. But I never had the confidence to go out on my own and write a script. I never, I wouldn't have done that at the time. And then I did more and more improv after university and I worked in telly and then I decided, it was October 2011, I was going, I'd, be, I'd done a lot with um, London improv troops and they had opened my eyes to um, the American troops and it's much bigger there, improv theatre. So I went to LA for three months and I improvised with, um, a theatre school called The Groundlings. And I just, I came back and I was buzzing. It just gave me the confidence, basically, just kind of getting up on my feet and doing both things together. And having not gone to drama school, actually, it gave me the confidence that I could do both. You know, I'd had enough training, you know, by that point that I could call myself an actor without kind of saying it in a weird voice. <laughs> or <laughs> slightly embarrassed. And, and it made me put pen to paper. And then, yeah, I came back in the January. And then in the February, I lost my dad. My own mortality really came to the forefront. I became very aware that actually I wasn't invincible, you know. And um, my pool of energy was not limitless and I needed to kind of really decide what I wanted to do. And, and so I started writing as well as acting. And, and yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that what I was able to do that. Yeah, thank you, Hannah. I'm going to move on to Gavin. Gavin Porter is a film documentary theatre maker from Butte Town in Cardiff. He has previously won a BAFTA Cymru Award as director of Best Short. He has worked for many years in collaboration with the National Theatre of Wales and in 2021, last year, they put on his first major theatrical work, Circle of Fifths. Now this was a show that um, had a big impact on me because it was on last summer and this was about the same time that I was having this idea of perhaps doing this podcast and then I went to see Circle of Fifths and it reaffirmed in me this, this belief that there is, there is strength and beauty in telling the tale of loss. What was, what was Gavin Porter doing before Circle of Fifths? What was your creative life like? When did you think, oh, I'd like to be a film documentary maker? Uh, when I was nine, I overheard a conversation in my house. Uh, my father said, oh, Apocalypse Now is on. So I snuck downstairs in the evening and watched it and it, it blew my mind. As I went upstairs, woke up my brother, said, oh, have you seen this film? Real effect on me. And then uh, in school, intellectually I was okay, but I, was, I struggled with the confines of school. So I left with no GCSE. I had three Ds, three Es and an F. And then for about six years, I just ran around the streets up to, up to no good, really. And then when I was 21, uh, a pub that I used to hang around in got raided and loads of my friends went to prison. Uh, throughout that time, I was always looking at films and talking about films and, you know, as a film fanatic, and I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Uh, but because I had no GCSEs, I had to go back and study again, so it took me another nine years to graduate, so I graduated when I was 30. Uh, so I kind of feel I'm a little bit, I'm happy where I am, and, and where I am is, is, is a good place, and it's, it's beautiful, all those things led me to be here, but I also feel sometimes I'm probably 10 years behind where I could have been if I would have applied myself, you know? Me and uh, three other artists from Butong, we set up a social enterprise called Community Helps Yourself. 
Uh, and I ran for, for about five years and I learned loads through that. So I used to teach young people film and animation and web design and blogging and all that kind of stuff. But I also learned my own craft through, through that. And then this company called National Theatre Wales were coming to the community. So to me, like, it had two loaded words. One was national and the other one was theatre. So I went to a workshop there and I met a guy called John, who I think you mentioned earlier, who's a, you know, a great guy, and a guy called Devinder. And I thought, oh, okay, there's something, maybe there's something different about these. Up until that point, theatre was like, uh, I just thought there's people in, in dicky bow ties and, and ball gowns. You know, <laughs> honestly, that, that's what I thought it was. But the first show that I worked on was called The Soul Exchange. And... Uh, you, the audience sat in a, in a taxi and the, 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 the show was played out on the radio in a taxi and as you drove around Butel you seen tableaus uh, on, on the streets that was relevant to the things you were hearing. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's a bit mad, you know, so theatre could be something different. Yeah, so I, like I say, I ended up taking every opportunity and I worked uh, for NTW for about seven years. Karis, coming back to you now, so what, what was the idea for you to want to create a a stand-up show, a one-woman stand-up show involving songs and comedy. What, what, what was the idea for that? Has that been always something you wanted to do? Uh, well, to be honest with you, as this podcast is about as turning pain um, into kind of the healing and through creativity, and whenever I would have a breakup, um, I would go back to mum and dad. My mum would be like, let's party. <laughs> Glitzy top and champagne, my baby's home. Uh, and then I, it was just so ridiculous, like how the situation would pan out. That it might, The way I would deal with it would be, because I'd be bereft. I would write comedy songs to okay. myself about the ridiculousness of the situation. You know, she'd be inviting neighbors over. She's home, I know, I'd be then so bereft. <laughs> It would be a bleak day and, and I'm stuffing sausage rolls and drinking champagne. It was so, I was like, but I was able to step out of the scenario and see the ridiculousness and I would process it through comedy songs yeah. for nobody. I was going to say, was that just for yourself? That was just for me. That yeah. was my personal healing. Yeah. And it was for my personal joy. So it didn't. So that. So I had like books of this stuff and that developed over the years. And then after a while, when I started with the National Theatre Wales, I was doing a musical. And at the time, the artistic director was like, and he was like, "Is there anything you're sitting with that you'd like to develop?" And I was like, "Do you know what? I've got a load of these songs that I think would really work well in a festival scenario. Mm. If I curated, you know, find a narrative." But I was still very young and not been listened to or heard before mm. um, and kind of terrified and he was like well I can match you up with somebody and then in the meantime I started a subscription to the New Scientist magazine because you know why not why not Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. we all need that in our lives yeah so I found it interesting it was reading outside of myself and I was learning about stuff that I wouldn't you know at one point I knew about badgers so much about badgers it was ridiculous and then years later Dirty Protest Theatre Company who do script in, script in hand they wanted me to be the cherry popping writer so they would always have a seasoned writers and then would have a, a, a newbie writer and the theme was space and time but my friend was like, just write a song. And I was like, okay, like I've done that before and for public. And uh, then I'd, re I'd read an article in The New Scientist about this drug that was being developed for people in, uh, to get over relationships. So to, to stop the neuroreceptor for oxytocin. But they were looking at it as a cure for love in many ways. So that, 
article stayed with me. And then I tweeted the neuroscientist. It was like, can I ask you more questions? And he was like, yeah, because scientists love to share, which is excellent news. So then he scouted me and gave me a lecture for free. I was like, you're a dude. And then I, um, and then I was like, oh, this song I meant to write. So then that's the song. It's like me going to my mother going like, I want to, you know, I'm bereft. I've broken up from my ex. But, you know, this drug, if this was in front of me right now, going to my mum, would I take it? And the song is, and she answers back, no, what you need is space and time. So I, it was like a parody song on Eminem, Slim Shady, called Space and Time. And it went down a treat. It was in a festival scenario. Everyone's covered in glitter and uh, having a lovely time. And then, so that was the first seed. And then um, years later, I, I had a coffee with a producer of, a, of Wales Millennium Centre who'd worked with me before on something else. And she was like, surely you've got an idea. I'm like, actually, like I've had all these songs forever. I've got the science vibe going on. I think this legs here to do a show about the science of love. So I was like trying to think to myself in terms of the title, what, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to teach people how to craft their love. I want them to have some love craft in their lives. And then I was like, but not the sex shop in Cardiff. And I was like, oh, there we go, there's a title. <laughs> so that's it, in a nutshell. That's it, in a nutshell. <laughs> a beautiful nutshell with badges. Um, Hannah, one of the lines that I really took from your piece that you wrote for Vogue was that you said, uh, as much as grief is debilitating, it's also liberating. And uh, I think that is so true. And um, did you feel having just made that huge decision and assertiveness in yourself to say, yeah, I can do this, and then losing your dad, did you feel like, well, F this now, I'm just gonna go full, full steam and just, it doesn't matter how, how people respond to me, I've got this, inner strength now that I didn't know existed. I did eventually. Or did that take a while? But it took a while. It took a while. It took a lot of wading through chaos that I wasn't even aware of, you know? That's kind of what I'm trying to explore years later in burial. Just this feeling of like completely being out at sea because a huge part of what you know, a huge part of me and, and a huge part of my makeup had completely disappeared and had just gone. And, you know, looking back, I had, I was in identity crisis, you know, and so I was trying to seek solace in all these different things, you know, good and bad, you know, booze, partying, work, you know, travel, meditation, and actually came to find it ultimately in writing and comedy and laughing and, you know. So that, because, yeah, I was yeah, going to say, uh, there's a gap between burial coming out and, and your dad passing. So those years were, were a confusing time for you then in terms of finding out who you were. And did you, re did you really think that it was the grief that was affecting you or do you think it was subconscious? Or were you aware this is, yeah, I'm no. feeling shit because I've lost my dad? Or was no. it, were you burying that? Excuse the, you know. Yeah, <laughs> nice plan. No, I don't think I was aware. I think, <clears throat> I think I was telling myself that I was fine. You know, I'd dealt with it and 
And um, I mean, God, I still don't quite, you know, fully know who I am. But, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd made this big decision of like, right, this is what I want to do. And then lost my dad. So then that was thrown into question. And yeah, I was just trying to kind of crawl back to that sense of security and, um, yeah, balance that had completely disappeared. But yeah, I was not, I wasn't aware I remember speaking to friends afterwards and they, you know, and they, them saying, you know, God, yeah, I remember I was, I, you know, I could see, you know, I, we, I was worried about you then. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? No, but you know, it was, I, I, was, I was telling everybody I was fine, you know, mm -hmm. I, but, yeah. but I was on a treadmill and I was. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, would you mind reading for us a, a little piece of that Vogue article for Not those who haven't uh, read it yet? So yeah, um, I'll start. I'll start with an extract. Um, it's near the beginning, but basically I'll praise it with, "I've set the scene. I'm 26. I'm living my best life. I'm in a flat share in London. We've got a little pulley system out of our front window, so that we don't have to walk downstairs to meet the pizza delivery guy. Like <laughs> life is sweet." Um, and then, spoiler alert: he dies of a heart attack. Grief made me feel like a million different people none of whom I'd ever met. I couldn't make sense of it. And for the first time in my life, I felt lost and lonely because whatever I tried, whoever I was, I couldn't find my dad. He was gone and I couldn't quite get my head around that. I became obsessed with grief. I read everything, everything I could get my hands on. There were lots of books about birds and solitude, but where was the grief survival manual? I booked myself on a silent meditation retreat. I lived like a monk in Monmouth for 10 days. No drinking, no smoking, no speaking. Nothing but contemplation and vegan curry. I felt reborn at the end of it, healed. Then I headed straight back to Dalston with my yoga mat and 20 marble lights and soon lost my chakras. <laughs> <laughs> my dad always encouraged us to think. So I thought, a lot. I thought about how we remember the dead, how we keep them alive, the stories we cling to and the ones we conveniently let go. And somewhere between the binge drinking and Buddhist meditation, I started writing. With my friend Georgia, I thrashed out a script which would turn into a short film, Burial. In it, I put on three costumes and play identical triplets bashing out their grief at their father's funeral. Three facets of the same person, three imprints of one man. It's a story of love, pain and reconciliation. A grieving daughter's attempt to make sense of the madness of grief and the pain of losing a parent. And guess what? It was the most cathartic thing I could have done. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Um, Gavin, um, first major theatrical work, Circle of Fifths, came out last year. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit of the backstory behind the idea behind Circle of Fifths, because it is rooted in personal loss, isn't it? And mm. at, what, at what point did you decide to use your grief in a creative way? Uh, and I knew NTW were interested in, in kind of working with me, and then COVID, COVID hit. And unfortunately, uh, my uncle passed away in COVID. As, as being mentioned, I'm from, from Buton, and like all communities, there's loads of traditions, and one of the traditions in Buton is funerals, and it's uh, 
you know, I, I, without exaggeration, I might go to about 11 or 12 funerals a year. Unfortunately, because of the fact that I think funerals are a big, make up a big part of the community. So in COVID, and because of numbers, people couldn't do that, that situation where we were all dealing with. And it was a way of, uh, how do I deal with, not, not grieving process, because that, that lasts forever, but going through the ceremony of, of my uncle's passing. How do you start a conversation with people about death? Is, is that, you know, it's, a, it's big, isn't it? And then I thought about my own relationship and also thinking about ceremony. And I thought, okay, well, maybe the, the opening question I can ask people is, oh, what song would you play at your funeral? And then through that, I think a lot of people, not everyone might know the answer, but through that opening question, then we can get to some of the deeper conversations. Go into it. It was quite an unconventional show in a, in a really cool way in that we start outside, which I was like, okay, this is cool. Uh, and then you follow a funeral procession into the theater um, and, and then you are very much a part, or it felt like you were very much a part of the, uh, of the set in the way that you had us seated or standing, whatever people wanted to do, and the actors surround you and they're telling you their stories and, they, and music, it seemed like, was such a huge part of it. Did you always, and you alluded to that being the first question, and is it true for the Butte Town tradition that music is a fundamental part of, of the, the, the grieving process and the funeral process. The physical journey of a Bhutan funeral, so it's, it's kind of in five stages, so we'll meet, not always, but quite often, this is how we'll go, we'll meet outside the house of the person who's passed away or their family member, then they'll carry the coffin to the, to the church, like walking down the street where the men will take over, uh, I'll swap. Then there's the more traditional uh, church service, but of course there's music, like, like a lot of you, there's music that, that you, you, you're carried into, there's the songs you sing or sometimes don't sing, and there's the music that you're carried out to. And I think that's quite interesting in terms of memory, music, identity, or loads of, there's loads of things. Then we'll go to the, to the graveside, and if they're getting buried, like I'll take my, my working boots and a shovel, and, and other people will, because then we, we'll fill in the grave, and that's kind of like, uh, the last physical offering you can do for the person uh, and then we'll go to the community centre depending on the circumstance if it's an older person who's lived their life then it's a celebration if it's a younger person who's had a tragedy then obviously it's, it's, it's much more muted isn't it so I thought okay well maybe the, the, the journey for the audience is that physical journey and that's what what happened and, yeah. yeah it was beautiful because we've got a little clip of the show here the speech that is made alludes to what Gavin just said. So here's a little clip. The burial is pissing down with rain and the earth is like clay. I'm in a cemetery as I make my way to the grave. At the graveside is the family, the mourners. There's a coffin. There's a hole. The coffin goes in the hole, and that clay got to fill that. So, there's the shovel. I got to take that earth, take that shovel, dig that earth, and fill that grave. I've got to dig that earth and fill that grave. Caris, coming back to you now. We, we've got Lovecraft, we've made it. 
performed it at the time that your dad first gets ill? Have you started performing it? Yeah, well, I, well the day I started to write it was the day he got diagnosed with motor neuron disease. The day you started writing yes, it? Yes, wow. I sat down at Chapter Art Centre, just around the corner from here, um, with my laptop, very excited. I had all my research behind me and I was like, today's the day. Put your massive cans on, your earphones as an international symbol and chapter, don't bother me, because uh, everyone loves a chat. And then, um, and then I, I just remembered my dad was meant to have tests and they were meant to go on a cruise and I thought, oh, I wonder how's that, how that's going. And I, you know, nothing, it was just like a stiff leg he'd had, so there was nothing major, I thought. And then there was no news, and normally no news is good news, but I was like, this is weird. It's been a while now. So then I rang mom and then she didn't answer. Then eventually she answered and she was just crying straight away, which is so unlike her. She's very good at putting that brave face on and she's just like, um, your dad's got a, it's a probable diagnosis, but of motor neuron disease. And I was in this place which is, you know, full of people. I knew people over there having meetings and I just had to kind of, I, I, you know, water coming out of my face and just kind of like shaking and putting all my stuff back in the bag and get out of there. So that he became disabled within three months. And writing the show was my solace. Um, it was a sanctuary. It was so much joy to delve back in because you were face seeing something so traumatic as somebody so big and strong as my father was, six foot two sports teacher, starting to shrink and then his muscle mass going and then not being able to move at all. And, but having to work and it was really difficult, but... Um, do you think you realised at the time that writing and the show w was your sanctuary or do you think you were just on autopilot at the time? I think it was autopilot, but then I was actively seeking it as a sanctuary because it was a bit too much to bear to see, you know, my life's biggest love be in that scenario. So I was coming back to this place and making myself laugh because, you know, these stories were all based on the madness of my past. And I was just finding them funny and then making them into songs. And it was such a process of joy. So I was compartmentalizing pretty well in order to get that done. Um, yeah, and then of course, um, he came to see the show. Um, my, my, the thing was, I only wrote that show to do a two-week run in Cardiff. I didn't think I would have a life beyond that. Yeah. I mean, I would, it was still going to last year. So um, it was a two-week run, and he wanted to come and see it. At this point, he's disabled and unsure whether he was happy to leave the house. You know, lots of things that, that he was battling mentally. Um, but he was like, he, ha he knew how much... He was really intrigued as well. He was just like, the title, Caris. <laughs> and so I played some of the songs so not to shock, they wouldn't be so shocked. You know, I had songs called Tit Montage and, and there was, you know, there was one song where I dropped a C-bomb in a very majestic way, I think. But I need to prep them for this. And there's <laughs> dad listening to this song in his wheelchair and I was just like, what is this? I'm like, it's fine. It's, it's going to be lovely. It's going to be really nice. And so the night that they came to the show, 
I made sure my sister was there. I mean, I, need, I needed to know where they were sitting, so I planted where they would sit. Okay. So I knew either to look or not to look I was going to say, yeah, is that to look or not to look? Yeah, yeah. especially with my mother with the swearing. <laughs> but because of the research, you know, that it's really about... That show was to teach people what romantic love is on the, on the brain, neuroscientifically, but then what love is on a wider scale in terms of society and friendship and community. That's the journey of it. Of me as a single person as well, and going through all this stuff when I found a love in all of the people around me. And that, those lessons came from him. Mm. Not they weren't scientifically backed, but like they, he, ta he taught me that way to mm. be a part of a community and have, you know, and be an active person in a community. Mm. So he saw it and he was a very bright man and big thinker and it was mad because at the end of the show we had a standing ovation and of course the only person in the room that couldn't stand up was my father yeah. um, in the wheelchair. And, um, and Are you he, right that he's your harshest critic as well as being your biggest fan? So oh what did he think? He was, he was so hilariously harsh with everything I've ever done. I could it would always see him in stuff in the past just looking at his watch. Uh, just in, in an audience, just like, oh God, dad's bored. <laughs> but I'd always find it really funny because he couldn't lie. Um, my mom would always be like, oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so but this, at this point, my mom sprung to her feet to applause because she's, she's seeing everyone else applause. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, my baby girl's done really well. Well, my dad, I ran to dad to give him a hug. Um, and he just went, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And he's like, that was a lot of work. You better charge a lot of money for that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We will continue the conversation from St. John's Church in the next episode of Feels Like Healing, where Cari Soleri will discuss what it was like performing her show in Edinburgh Festival not long after her father's passing. Hannah Daniel will describe making the film Burial all about the loss of her dad, and Gavin Porter will tell us how he sourced the actors for his brilliant show Circle of Fifths from the local Butetown community. Make sure that you rate and subscribe to this podcast as it will help to spread the word about Feels Like Healing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>